0: Well, we've been teaching since Friday night on the book of Jude, and the book of Jude is referred to as the least studied book in the New Testament, and I thought we should do what we could to rectify that. So if you would open your Bibles to the book of Jude, we're actually going to spend our time this morning on the last two verses. Uh, I said on Friday evening when we began, people would ask the question, how in the world can you get eight classes out of the book of Jude? My dilemma was how do I get everything in the book of Jude into eight classes because we could easily have spent uh, such a long time. You know, Jude, uh, in a way, is kind of like that old story of Hansel and Gretel going through the woods dropping uh, breadcrumbs so that they could find their way home. Uh, Jude drops breadcrumbs all the way through the book. And if you got a copy of the notes, I don't know if there are still notes out there. Uh, I hope that you'll study these. These took, you can't believe, hours and hours and days to put together. And I hope that you'll go through them. But if you look up some of the references that are given, you could actually spend uh, a month just uh, in your daily study time or whatever time you're able to find free working your way through this wonderful, marvelous little book called Jude. I want to uh, begin, obviously, with a word of prayer, and and then I'm just going to hit a little bit of review, um, and then we'll get into these last two marvelous verses. So if you would join me at the throne of grace, let's ask that God would bless our time together. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come together this morning, my prayer is for each and every one who has chosen to gather with us, but not for us alone. Across this land, there are churches, large and small. There are people in the cities. There are people in villages. There are people meeting in little one-room country churches. There are people meeting in homes. And Father, we lift them all up to you in prayer, and we pray that you will purify your bride, that you will refine us for the time in which we live, because these truly are the days of Elijah. But not only are they the days of Elijah, they're the days of Noah. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So, Father, we ask that you will prepare and equip us this day for what you have ahead of us this week. Uh, Change us into the people that you want us to be. Uh, Don't let us leave here the same as we came in. Uh, You alone, by the power of your Spirit, and working with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, can perform that spiritual surgery and surgery of the soul that we need, that we might be more conformed to the character and the image of our marvelous and glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray these things in His name. Amen. I thought while we were singing, someone asked me if I ever get tired of the song, The Days of Elijah. I never get tired of it because I always think of the video, and I'm sure many of you have seen it, uh, where the Marines, I think they were in Iraq or Afghanistan, are singing that song together. You know, that was a high point in our military. When we see those young men, those fine, straight, strong, young warriors standing there and singing praise and glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think our military is like that anymore and it breaks my heart uh, because they were among the finest. I cannot watch the video without wondering how many of them laid down their lives for a nation that no longer respects and honors their service. And as I say, it just breaks my heart. We In our last session, we looked at verses 17 to 23 because the book of Jude challenges us in verse 3 to contend earnestly for the faith. In other words, to enter into that hand-to-hand combat, or as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 9, to run so as to win, to pour everything that we have into the effort serving our Lord in the way that He has called us to serve. And there's not a one of us that is not called to serve Him in some way. God doesn't have great and little children, loved or unloved children, uh, big or small. God has children who are all called to serve in a very significant way. And some get attention. You know, we get attention. We travel around. We go to conferences. People give us a lot of credit. Well, I realize that we are getting our reward now. There are those who will not get their reward until they stand in the presence of the Lord. So if you're one of those, and every time we come to this church, I'm always so impressed by the people who spend their time serving everyone else. They're laying out food, they're preparing coffee, they're just doing so many things to prepare to take care of other people. And they're unknown and in many cases unsung. And I always try to encourage people who come, give a word of thanks and express a little bit of appreciation to those people because, trust me, the greatest servants that the Lord has on this earth are people who very seldom hear any word of encouragement or expression of gratitude. Uh, but we started in verse 17 because if we're going to contend for the faith, we have to know why we're doing it. We have to know how to do it. As a matter of fact, and I failed to cover this last time, uh, again, it's in the notes. If you have the notes, it's on page five. We have to know our mission. We have to know the mission that we have, and this really covers uh, verses 17 to 25, which I'll Uh, briefly rehash for us this morning, but it reminds me of the military principle of the U.S. Marine Corps, and I checked with Colonel Curcio to make sure that I got this right in what they call a five-paragraph field order. Uh, It goes under the acronym SMEAC, and SMEAC stands for five things that have to be considered, evaluated, and prepared for in order to carry out an effective mission. If you and I are going to carry out our mission, uh, this would be a good thing for us to review. And it's so interesting to me that we find all of these elements in this little book of Jude. The S, of course, stands for the situation. In other words, what is the overall status and disposition both of the friendly and the unfriendly forces? Well, we have that in verses 1 through 4. We have those who are called, sanctified, and kept in Jesus Christ, those that God desires to multiply mercy, peace, and love to, and then we have those who are imposters. We have those who have crept in to the church for the purpose of bringing destruction. So we have the situation understood. We need to understand the mission. The mission must have a clear and concise statement of the objective. This is often called the commander's intent. What is it the commander wants us to accomplish? Well, Jude gives us this in verse 3. He wants us to contend earnestly for the faith. And again, that word refers to a very intense type of either athletic or military uh, exercise. After the situation and the mission comes the execution. All right, we've considered conditions. We know our objective. What is the execution of the mission? How do we conduct the operation, including the tactical plan, the various tasks, and the coordination of units? And that's really given to us in verse 17 to 23, which I'll briefly review before we move on. Then comes the A, the administration and logistics. This includes the supply of all needs to accomplish the mission. In combat, they call it the beans, the bullets, the band aids, and the bad guys. In other words, who's going to provide the food, the ammunition, the medical care, and how do we deal with the bad guys should we take any of them as captives? Well, our taking of captive is when we win people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And once we take them captive, they're no longer enemy forces. They now have joined the royal army of Jesus Christ. Last of all comes command and signal, which identifies the chain of command, who's in charge, what are the various links in the chain of command. And believe it or not, that is laid out for us in verses 24 and 25, which we are very shortly going to look at. So there is the basic field order uh, for our activity. If you will, opening to the book of Jude, begin in verse 17 through 23. I'm not going to read it again, uh, but we actually are given a number of commands here. Uh, Again, on your notes, I think I have all of those laid out. Seven things that we're supposed to do. Not all of these are in the imperative. Uh, it's important for us to understand, and of course, this is something that we as pastors spend more time in than than you would, and, and we notice that this is a command, and this may not be a command. Uh, oftentimes, Jude is very fond of participles, and participles, of course, refer to continuous action. Uh, Sometimes it's the beginning of an action, depending on whether it's an aorist or a present. And probably only a couple of you here in the room really understand what all that means. But the point is that I want to make, oftentimes, writers of Scripture will use a participle with the force of a command. In other words, I'm not commanding you to do this. I'm just telling you to keep on doing it. It's kind of like my dad's commands. His commands oftentimes came in the word in the form of a suggestion. It would be good if you would go and hook up that trailer and go out there and get that hay in before it rains. Now that sounds like an option. It, there was no option even if he said it would be good if you did it, and I'm thinking, well, what if I don't do it? And I actually never thought that because I learned very early as a small child what happened if I didn't take his suggestions. They were given as commands. It's uh, kind of a nice way of saying, go do that and do it now, and it better be done right, uh, but in kinder language. So it would be good if you do this. Well, here we have the seven things that we're supposed to do. We're to remember the revealed Word of God in verse 17, and that's why we're gathered together here this morning. As I mentioned in the first class, the word remember is an imperative, but it's a passive And as a passive imperative, it means that you are to receive that command, not necessarily produce it. You are to be reminded of the Word of God, and we are all reminded of the Word of God when we come together and we study His Word in the church. We're reminded of His Word when we put, as I said last hour, put up verses in your home. Put up passages of Scripture so that as you move about your home, as you relax, as you look up at the wall, you're being reminded of principles and passages and promises of Scripture. Remember the reveal Word of God. Then he says in verse 20, build yourselves up in the faith. The word for building is actually a word for building a house, and you build a house on a foundation. And as Jesus reminded us in Matthew 27, you can either build on sinking sand or a solid foundation. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 3.11 that other foundation can no man lay than that which God has laid, which is Jesus Christ. So make sure you're building your life on the foundation of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then don't stay there. Don't be like many Christians who sit at the foot of the cross and suck their thumb till Jesus comes. Let's grow up in the faith. Let's not remain an infant. Let's learn the Word of God. Let's put it into practice. You know, children grow basically by doing two things. They eat a lot and they play a lot. One of our little sons reminded my wife one time when she told him that he should go sit down and do his homework. Now, I think he was about maybe six, he, five or six. He was uh, just starting school and uh, he looked at her and he said, Mom... You know, growing boys need a lot of time to play. (laughs) And that's true. They run, they play, they just are active. Unfortunately, we're in a generation now where they're stuck to a phone or a computer. I know as I look out at many of you near my age, some of you older than my age, I know how you grew up playing. It was baseball in the street, it was skating on the pond. It was making swords out of uh, building slats, you know, and your your shield was a, the lid of an old garbage can or something and you're out there fighting and battling and we would run and we would play and we would just be active all day long. You get on your bicycle and you're down to visit your neighbor and he's six, eight miles away. What is that? That's just a nice ride. Same way in the spiritual life, we feed on the Word of God and then we go and we practice it. And the more we practice it, the more it becomes an actual part of our life. He says, then pray in the power of the Holy Spirit in verse 20. And this is nothing more and nothing less than making sure that the spirit of God's in control in our life. Our life is clean. We've confessed any known sin. God has cleansed us of that sin. The vessel is pure Paul tells us that when we purify the vessel of our life, we will be a vessel that is fit for the master's use. The Spirit of God cannot dwell in a filthy house. Now, the Spirit of God indwells each and every one of us, but He is not going to be in control of our life unless our life is clean. So... Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. You will be surprised if when you pray, you take time to examine yourself, to confess anything that the Lord convicts you of, and then pray, you will be surprised, number one, how it changes your prayers. Number two, you'll be surprised how powerful your prayers become. I've had Christians say to me, God never answers my prayer. What they don't realize is they just acknowledge to me that they're not living their life in fellowship with God. Let's be in fellowship with God. Let's live in obedience uh, as best we can. Let's confess when we fail. And then let's watch what God does as we utter those simple childlike prayers. Keep yourselves in the love of God, he says in verse 21. And as we saw by going back to John 15 and verse 10, Jesus said very simply, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. God loves obedience. God loves obedience more than my dad loved obedience, and my dad really, really, really liked <laughs> obedience. And he was very, very swift to remind me when I was not obedient, and unfortunately I was one of those kids who, try as I might, I just couldn't seem. Uh, if you've ever watched the, uh, or read the little cartoons of Calvin, I'm convinced the guy that does the Calvin cartoon was watching me when I was a kid, because that's the kind of kid I was. In verse 21, the second party says that we're to keep looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming for us with mercy. You know what mercy does? Have you ever thought about the difference between grace and mercy? You know, the Bible tells us that we're saved by grace through faith, and that's a marvelous thing. But the Bible also talks a lot about mercy. In Ephesians chapter 2, for example, he talks about the fact that though you were dead in sin, God being great in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, has delivered us and brought us to himself through Christ. And grace and mercy I see as two sides of a coin. Grace is the addition side of the coin. Mercy is the subtraction side of the coin. What do I mean by that? Well, God's mercy takes away from us the judgment that we deserve. God's grace gives to us the resources, the privileges, the provisions that we don't deserve. And so when you take God's subtraction, removing our sins and removing the judgment and God's addition, that is the provision of His grace, then what you have by subtraction and addition is the ability to move on, as He tells us up there in verse 1 and 2, to multiply the mercy, the peace, and the love of God. You know, when you start into school, of course, I'm still back there. I I do well to add and subtract. My wife does all my multiplying for me. She's got a brain that's as sharp as a razor. But one thing I learned, you can't multiply until you learn how to add and subtract. We are never going to multiply the grace of God in our life until we learn to rely on that mercy, on a day-by-day basis, again coming to Him in humility and humbling ourselves before His throne and acknowledging the things that we do wrong, the harsh words that we oftentimes say to those that we love the most. You know, oftentimes we speak the worst to the ones we love the most. Isn't that amazing? Or sometimes the thoughts that we have that are so uh, denigrating to other people putting them down in our mind, finding all their faults, making light of them. Well, those things may be in our head and nobody else sees it, but the Lord sees every one of it. Let's learn to humble ourselves and let Him take those things from us and then He replaces that which He takes with His grace and His provision and all of a sudden something begins to happen in our spiritual life. We have moved, we have graduated, if you will, into multiplication. I have a grandson and I don't know where he got this, but he is very brilliant in math. He didn't get it from me and I'm sure he didn't get it from his dad. by the time he was in eighth grade, he had finished all college courses in math. I'm not just talking math, I'm talking math. I'm talking algebra, I'm talking trigonometry, I'm talking, I don't even know what comes beyond that. He throws this stuff out at me. He set his goal as about a 10-year-old. He knew what he wanted to do with his life. He wants to be an aeronautical engineer. And so by the eighth grade, he had already completed all of his college and university classes in mathematics. Well, I never got that, but I use it as an illustration. If I can add and subtract, I can multiply. If I can multiply, I can move into algebra. If I can move from algebra, I'll go into calculus and trigonometry. I never got that far, but he's an illustration to you. What can God do in your life? He can do amazing things. He can do more than we've seen at this point. I have to hurry up. Because this is all review. You know, it's terrible when your review takes longer than the class. (laughs) Finally, in verse 6, have compassion on those who are doubting. There are people around us who are members of the family of God who struggle. They struggle with the sense of security. They struggle with the question, am I really saved? They struggle with the question, am I following God's will for my life? And as they struggle and they wrestle with those things, you and I can be a bulwark and a source of strength to them and a word of encouragement to them, and it takes so very little sometimes to stabilize a doubting believer. Finally, he says, save with fear those unbelievers who can be snatched from the fire. So seven things we can do to contend for the faith, but it ends as really we could only end in talking about spiritual warfare and spiritual accomplishment, and that is, it all depends on the Lord. Read verse 24 and 25 with me. Now unto him who is able, isn't that a fabulous phrase? Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling, if anyone ever needed to be kept from stumbling, it's yours truly. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. An absolutely amazing passage of Scripture. I want to focus on that little phrase, now unto him who is able. This is one of three doxologies, doxologies are passages that are like a hymn, they're like a song of praise, and they're giving glory to God. And this is one of three marvelous doxologies that we have in Scripture, and it's interesting how the three of them, though they're similar, they don't cover the same ground. And I want to share those three doxologies with you. So if you would, turn with me to the book of Romans, which ends with a doxology. I guess if I have a favorite book in the Bible, it's the book of Romans. Usually I tell people my favorite book is whatever book I'm studying at the time. But I come back again and again and again to the book of Romans. And if you look at the conclusion of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says, Now unto him who is able... Romans 16, 25, what is he able to do? He's able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to to the faith. Paul bookends the book of Romans. You know what bookends are? They sit at each end of the book. And in Romans 1.5, and here in the last verse, there is a bookend of a phrase that is very important. It's called obedience to the faith obedience to the faith Romans begins with obedience to the faith Romans ends with obedience to the faith what does obedience to the faith mean well it depends on where you are if you're an unbeliever obedience to the faith means believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ and so Paul tells us at the very beginning in the first 17 verses that he is a debtor to the gospel of Jesus Christ that God has called him to spread the word of God, which through the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed to us by faith in Christ. The act of obedience is to hear and believe. But after you've worked your way through the book of Romans, you come to the end and he's now assuming that we've gained something, we've developed, we've grown, and now he's talking about obedience to the faith for the child of God. At least this is how I see the two uses of this phrase. But what is God able to do? I want you to notice that what he is able to do is based on three little words according to. You see those three words? The three uses of the word according to. Now unto him who is able, what can he do? He can establish you. The word establish means to stabilize you. It means to strengthen you. It means to be able to make you stand. You may find it difficult to stand in the time in which we live. And we have so many forces pulling and pushing and shoving and so much uncertain ground under our feet anymore. But there is one who is able to make you and I stand. And that is God himself. He is able to stabilize, to strengthen, and to make us stand in these uncertain times. But there are three conditions on which he does it. And those are the little according to phrases. Number one, according to the gospel. Paul always starts at the beginning. You know, he doesn't start his story at the end or in the middle. It's always the beginning. God is able to establish you according to my gospel. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you've taken step one in being stabilized in the world in which we live today. According to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations. You say, what in the world is this? Well, now he's moving beyond the gospel. He's moving beyond just saying the Word of God. He's talking New Testament truth, New Testament doctrine. The story of the church, the church is called a mystery. Why? Because it was not known in the Old Testament. The personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit is called a mystery. Why? Because it was not something that was experienced by every believer in Old Testament times, but now it is. And so what Paul's saying is, you've received the gospel, that's wonderful, now let's move on. Let's understand the mystery. Paul calls the return of Jesus Christ in what we call the rapture of the church a mystery. He says, I want to reveal to you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. How well do we understand these new revelations that came particularly through the Apostle Paul recorded for us in Scripture? God's able to make us stand if we understand those mysteries and then he says according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith have you noticed the progression here first I believe in the gospel then I learn the newly revealed word of God all the way from Matthew through the book of Revelation and as I learn it now I am able to act in accordance with the things that God has revealed and Paul is telling us something very important the power for you standing comes from God but it doesn't come without cooperation on your part you are going to have to cooperate with the plan of God and the plan of God and the will of God is something that we have to orient to his will is revealed maybe you've never thought of it this way God reveals his will for all of us in his word He tells us what He wants. He tells us what He expects. He tells us what we ought to do. That is what we refer to as the revealed will of God. But somewhere along the line, we have to move beyond the revealed will of God to the plan of God. Now we're talking about something that is not revealed. It is not written in Scripture. God didn't tell me, I want you to be a pastor. He didn't tell me, I want you to be a missionary. I want you to travel around the world. Here's the woman that I want you to marry. Boy, am I ever glad I got the right one. But He didn't tell me that. That's part of the plan of God. You see, the will of God is revealed in Scripture. The plan of God is only discovered, I hope you get this point, by those who pursue His revealed will. What would God have me to do? Get into His Word and obey His will, and He will reveal His plan. And if we do those three things believe the gospel, learn the word, obey what we understand, God is able to make us stand. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians, our second doxology. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians tells us what we have in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with a few spiritual blessings. Is that what your Bible says? No, no. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. You have no idea what has been entrusted to your care. You have no idea the resources that have been placed in your spiritual bank account. All you have to do is write the checks of faith. Listen, there's so much in your spiritual account, you will never exhaust that account. But you have to write the checks. And so Paul tells us in the first three chapters that there are at least 40, depending on who you read. Some pastors say 33, then someone else says 36, then someone else says 40. It depends on how you divide it, but there are at least 40 things in the first three chapters that every single one of us in this room share together. I would encourage you to sit down. You want to notice them? Come back to chapter one. Quick exercise. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him. There's number one. You say, how did he choose us? Well, we covered that yesterday. You should have been here. Matthew 22, God sends the call out. He invites all men to come into his family by faith. Those who respond are called the elect. Election is not something God does and imposes on man. Election is a cooperation between God and man. Where he calls, man responds to the call and therefore is called the elect. He chose us in him. Notice, before the foundation of the world. You say, well, it's before the foundation of the world. Yes, that's true. Don't lose the little phrase, in Him. Have you ever thought that before creation, before the world began, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in perfect communion came up for a plan, and the plan they came up with was called human history. And in that plan, they left nothing unplanned. Everything is organized. Everything is planned. Your life was planned. You were known by God before the world began. And God the Father turns to God the Son, puts his arm around his shoulder, and says, all those who are in you are going to be my elect. And why is that? Because in Isaiah 42 and verse 1, the first use of the word election, it's all about Jesus Christ. Behold my servant, my elect one, in whom is all my delight. The elect one is what determines whether you're elect or not. Are you in him or not in him? He chose us in him. How did he choose me in him? He chose Christ to go to the cross to pay the penalty for my sins so that I would have the opportunity to believe in him and have eternal life. And you just read through. From chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 5, having predestined us to adoption. I want to just give a word of caution. The word predestination, rezo is used five times in the New Testament. It is never used of salvation, ever. It does not say he predestined an unbeliever to become a believer. It says he predestined his children to the adoption of sons. Don't get confused by these things. We're adopted sons and daughters of God. In him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, two things right there, which he made to abound to us, verse 8, having made known to us the mystery of his will. Do you see how many things Paul is just unpacking and unfolding and just laying down everything that we have? We'll come now to Ephesians 3.20 and we'll see how he wraps it all up. Now unto him who is able. What a marvelous phrase. What is he able to do? Paul said in Romans 16 that he was able to make us stand. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power at work in us. to him be glory in <clears throat> excuse me. to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ through all generations forever and ever. What is he able to do? He's able to make a stand in Romans. Here he is able to answer our prayers above and beyond anything that we think or ask. I want to ask you a question. When's the last time God answered a prayer above and beyond anything you thought or anything you expressed in your prayer? My friend, if it's not happening to you, something's wrong. Something is wrong in your life. Nan and I go on these mission trips and we come back and we go, I can't even believe. We were able to dedicate a church that was built by donations from people here in this country in a remote village that had no church but a lot of believers. And we, the church was built, took eight years to get the church done. We dedicated that church. We had two days of meetings with pastors from four different tribes. We then went to a Bible college and we met with 70 or 80 Bible college students and were able to teach them for two days. Nan and the girls spent... I think about six or seven days with little orphan girls. Many of them have lost their parents. Some of them, their parents just can't afford to feed them. One time, too, a little boy and a little girl lost their mother. This children's home found that little boy and that little girl sleeping on their mother's grave, six and eight years old. No one would take them in. No one would feed them. At night, they knew nowhere to go except this is mama's grave. This is where we're going to sleep. And those little children were cared for in that children's home. We left the children's home. We went to Hyderabad. We were met by people from our church, marvelous couple, Mike and Marilyn, and they came over and joined us. And we had, you saw pictures of the people gathered on the steps there, a marvelous conference with 70 pastors and their wives, plus 40 new Bible students. All of that in a couple of weeks. And before we went, we prayed and said, Lord, please make this effective. And we come back and we go, it's above and beyond. And this happens to us all the time. It doesn't mean we don't have disappointments. It doesn't mean we don't have heartaches. It doesn't mean that sometimes we don't pray and it seems that our our prayers are just wafting away in the air. But we see enough. It's why I'm so convinced of the truth of Scripture. I know that I know that I know that it is true. Why? Number one, because the presence of the Lord in my life is too strong for me ever to deny it. And number two, I see so many times when I pray. I give a lot of credit to my wife, and she deserves much more than I give her. But you know, I dated a couple of girls before I met her, considered getting married. Thank God it didn't happen. I was working as a security guard. I was out early in the morning. I drove a security truck from midnight until eight in the morning. And I'm in a desert area and I had seen a coyote. And I'm always fascinated by wildlife. And I I stopped and I'm watching this coyote and I'm praying and I'm saying, Lord, I'm tired of looking for a mate. I'm tired of looking. It only ends in disappointment and disillusionment. I'm going to quit. I'm going to stop looking. If you have someone for me, you're going to have to find them. Guess what happened? My wife who was on a running team comes running by. (laughs) And you know the strange thing? I didn't see her again. We talked briefly. I didn't see her again for a year. Whole year went by. never saw her again. That whole time I'm thinking, well, the Lord must not want me married. Maybe there's not a woman in the world crazy enough to put up with me. A year later... Here I am at my job at the security place while I'm going to Bible college. I drive the patrol truck. Lo and behold, there's a coyote in the same place I saw him a year ago. And I stop the truck and I'm looking at him and I look up and here comes this dainty little thing running along the road. She didn't run like that, but... We got to talking and she was an unbeliever. And I asked her out, and she was on a running team, where do you go for a date with a girl who's a runner? We went to a track meet. <laughs> After the track meet, we went to dinner. We sat down at the table, and in my mind, I'm thinking, number one, she's got to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, she has to have a hunger for the Word of God. And number three, she better be willing to go wherever God leads her. And so I start witnessing to my wife. First date. Within a short time, she has trusted Christ as her Savior. And then she begins to come with me to Bible study. I went to Bible study five times a week, plus going to Bible college. She starts coming to Bible study with me, but it's interfering with her track workouts. I don't know if you know this, but she was a nationally ranked runner. She was on her way to the Olympic trials. She was that good. Her coach said... Your Bible classes are interfering with your training. She was, by the way, his top runner. She was the best he ever had. You either have to give up your Bible study or give up your place on the team. You know what she said? Bye. Walked away from all her work, all her training, all her dreams. I said, well, she's become a believer. She's definitely positive to the Word of God. Will she go anywhere God leads. Well, we got married. We got on horseback and went up in the San Juan Mountains and spent three months riding through the San Juan Mountains camping in a tent. And I said, I think this is the one. (laughs) God is able to do, my friend, above anything you think if you will just let the power that is in you work. Remember there in Jude where it said praying in the Holy Spirit? That's the power he's talking about right here. He can do exceeding and abundantly above everything we ask or think according to the power at work in us. That's the power. Remember in Romans 8, 26, you can look at it later, where it talks about the Holy Spirit intercedes for us because we know not what we should ask for as we ought. Here's the great thing. The Holy Spirit will translate your prayer to God the Father if you allow the Holy Spirit to be in control of your life. Dear God, I want a new car. The Holy Spirit says, this cock doesn't need a car. Give him a bicycle, and the Father gives a bicycle. Or you're humble and broken and battered, and you say, Lord, I would be happy to just have a bicycle, and lo and behold, as someone did to me one time when I was broke and had no money, they came up and they gave me a car. Just gave me a car. I was an old Dodge Duster and the seats were all torn and it had a bumper that was flapping. But hey, when you're hoofing it everywhere you go, you feel like you're riding in style. He did above and beyond anything. I could go on and on and on. I want that to be a reality for you. God wants it to be a reality for you. You may be struggling in your marriage right now. I want to tell you something. He can turn your marriage into a romance that will be the envy of everybody around you. Because He did it for me and my wife. And it may shock you, but there was a point where we were about to split up. There was a point where I said, this is not going to work. And we prayed... And at first we prayed separately. You know, there are times when you can't even pray together. But we prayed and we humbled ourselves and we let God work and through the power at work in us. I always wanted a marriage that was a romance. You know, why have something that's just run of the mill? If it's not a love story that's the envy of people around you, what in the world is wrong? And you know what? After 50 years, it's better than it's ever been. I wouldn't go back to one. You know, I hear people say, oh, if I could be 25 again. I would say, stupid. I almost said something I shouldn't have said there. It's taken God 45 years to get my eyes and ears open. We, we say all the time, we have a love story. Our prayer is, if God's going to take us before the rapture, we pray that He'll take us together. We started together, we want to end together. We thought we were going to. We're on a plane flying out of Spokane, Washington. We hear a guy at the back of the plane. He's one of the attendants, and he screams, there's a fire! Well, when you're at 35,000 feet, that's not really what you want to hear. <laughs> I had fallen asleep, I I laid back, I had my hat over my eyes, I'm sound asleep and I hear this guy yell, there's a fire. And then I hear thump, 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 thump. He's running up the aisle. I lifted my hat up and I looked at Nan, she said, there's an emergency. I said, yeah, there's a fire. (laughs) Well, if you've caught fire at 35,000 feet, you're going down. So I said to Nan, I want you to start praying for these people. As soon as we confirm that this is true, I'm standing up and I'm going to be giving these people the gospel until we go into the ground. Now, please don't think I'm super brave. My heart's going, but I'm going to make every minute count. And here I am ready. I'm thinking of passages. I'm thinking I'm going to give them Romans. I'm going to give them Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to take them to John chapter 3. I'm going to do everything I can. And I see this guy on the phone, he's apparently on the phone to the pilot, and he's, he's going like this, and he's going like this, and then finally this look of relief comes on his face, and as it was explained later, it was a malfunction in the warning system, and he thought there was a fire, and everything was okay. But you know what? What a good test. What would I do if this were going to happen? I hope we'd all do the right thing. Turn back with me to the book of Jude. If God is able to make me stand in the uncertain times in which I live, and if while I'm standing, He is able to do above and beyond anything that I think or ask, what more can He do? Well, Jude tells us. Jude verse 24, Now unto Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless, now He shoots us into eternity future, He is able to keep me from stumbling and present me faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. How joyful will you be when you stand in the presence of the Lord? Well, if you let him make you stand and let him do above and beyond anything you think or ask and let him keep you from stumbling. And by the way, this doesn't mean you're going to live a perfect life. You know, Psalm 121, verse 3 He who keeps you will not let your foot stumble. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber or sleep. He's the one who does the perfect work. We will always be imperfect. We will always fall short at times. But when you stumble, you get back up. When you fall, you rise up again and you keep pressing on to the goal. So that we can do what? So that we can stand faultless in the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. You know what God loves to hear when you sin. You know the only prayer that he wants to come out of your mouth when you have failed terribly? He wants to hear the prayer of the prodigal son. Father, I've sinned. The prodigal son wanted to add, because we love to beat ourselves down, I'm no longer worthy to be your child. Have you ever felt that way with God? Just make me one of your servants and I'll be happy. The father didn't even let him get those words out of his mouth. The minute he said, Father, I have sinned, he said, bring the robe, put the robe on him. Put the sandals on his feet, a picture of service. The robe, of course, is a picture of being restored and purified. Put the ring on his finger, the signet ring that has the father's bank account on it. Kill the fatted calf, let's have fellowship. Every time you fall down, when you utter that, prodigal prayer, Father, I have sinned, you are restored. And by the way, when he left home, he only had the second son's inheritance. When he came back, he was made the first son. He got the full double portion of the inheritance. Now unto him who is able to present you faultless with exceeding joy to God, our Savior, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God the Father, the author of the plan of salvation, God the Son, the executor of the plan of salvation, God the Holy Spirit, the agent who apply, applies the plan of salvation to us. They're all working together. Who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now. And forever, Amen. You know what I plan to do? I plan to take you to Appendix F on page nine because I have eight points on what God is able to do. Guess what? Time's up. You want to hear it real quick? Three minutes. God is able to do the impossible, Matthew 19:26. God is able to save forever those who believe in Jesus Christ, Hebrews 7:25. God is able to supply our every need, 2 Corinthians 9.8. God is able to deliver all who are tempted, Hebrews 2.18. God is able to make the weak stand, Romans 14.4. God is able to surpass all our expectations. We just saw that, Ephesians 3.20. God is able to keep us falling. That's our passage, Jude 24 and 25. And finally, God is able to raise us up in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ with great glory. God is able. You know, the word able means having the inherent power and ability to accomplish the task. Actually, Pastor Mike talked about that last night. Dunamis, dynamic power. Whatever your need this morning, my friend, God is able to meet that need. I pray that you will allow Him do it, uh, to do it and to surprise you with the greatness of His grace. I'm going to leave it there, and I think we're going to watch Amazing Grace. What a great song to finish on. Thank you all. God bless you.